Hello and welcome to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast produced by me, Fraser McGrewer, for Aleph Insights. In this series of podcasts, we take a look at interesting topics and discuss what we think they tell us about analysis and decision making. I'm here with Chris Ragg, Peter Coghill and Nick Hare of Aleph Insights. And this week we're discussing the discovery of one of the lost inverted jennies. Nick, first of all, what's an inverted jenny? Well, as anyone who's seen the He's a gynecologist, the the nineteen eighties uh, classic um, comedy Richard Pryor vehicle Brewster's Billions will, will tell you. Uh, the inverted Jenny is one of the most famous stamps of all time. Um, it was a stamp that was printed uh, in order to celebrate the first airmail flights across the US. And uh, the plane they used was called the Jenny. And one particular pane of stamps, that's a 10 by 10 sheet of stamps, was printed upside down. Um, so there are hundreds of stamps out there that were uh, printed upside down. And uh, it was recognised very early on that this would make them uh, extremely um, desirable. And indeed, that is it has so proved they sell for hundreds of thousands of dollars by, by each. By the guy who bought the original pane, I think. He, yeah, he, he bought it as an ran, investment, he, essentially. And he ran away and, and hid from the uh, the post office workers who and, wanted them back. And they, really? they've basically been, uh, over time, uh, you know, but that pain has been broken up and sold in part to people. And, and, and you know, but some of it, a lot of it's been completely accounted for and they know who owns it and some of them are on display and so on. But um, there were uh, one or two which had been lost to uh, to science and uh, no one knew where they were. They, they didn't know if they'd been destroyed or, uh, you know, like in Brewster's Billions where he actually uses it as a stamp. Um Oh, sorry. Spoiler alert. Uh, anyway, so this until until about a month ago, when um, what they think is inverted Jenny number forty nine, which is one of the few tiny few remaining ones that hadn't been accounted for, seems to have turned up in someone's family vault. Um, I mean, so great. Um, the the thing that interests me though is that the surprise is not that it's been found really, but why that it's taken so long to find it, given given how easy it is now to find information and to find out about you know, for example, stamps and what they're worth. Um, you know, it seems to me that more and more things are uh, you know appearing in digital form. Um, and and it's uh, I just you know I was thinking well in the future is it is it fair to say that there will be you know almost no mysteries left or uh, will everything be there on the internet to be found? Okay, you mean you're just starting to get into that, but can you elaborate when you say given how easy it is to find things now, just just be a bit more explicit about what you're talking about there. You, I mean you've kind of got into it. By well, I mean about the internet. I, yeah, I mean so for example, once these inverted jennies are found now their records are going to be on the internet, centralised. And anyone who wants to find an inverted jenny in the future will look up on a list of inverted jennies and find out where they are. And we will know for sure that, uh, you know, we have them all. Um, you, you know, that wasn't the case 50 years ago. These, there wasn't a centralised, easily found, real-time database of these things. And so it, it just seems to me, you know, as as time goes on, more and more things will have a digital, um, a kind of digital receipt, if you like. And, uh, you know, the question is, in future, are is it, will, will all things be known? You know, if it isn't on the internet, will we just say, well, it's lost to lost to humanity? So I think what we're talking about here is 
in the in the future history should be simple should be easy right or 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 right? is it or is it but also I, the first question that sort of comes to me here is something we've discussed before it's um information um versus uh so storage versus um processing i think is an issue here mm-hmm. who wants to jump in well uh, yeah okay, i'll go for it uh, so yeah so yes i think you're right there fraser so storage costs so the cost of storing information on a disk or a hard disk or a flash drive, whatever, is pretty much approaching zero or will pretty much approach zero. The trick, though, is raw storage is one thing, which is very different from a curated, managed source of information. That's still going to be quite costly and expensive because that still involves people um, uh, at the moment. You still have to have somebody who knows what stuff is where or at least manages a catalogue of stuff that is well maintained so that future people can find things again but technology particularly sort of artificial intelligence potentially could relinquish that because you could query all of the stuff and find what's salient to any given question um so yeah it's likely that um storage costs are going to approach zero and useful storage i.e stuff that you can retrieve things from will approach zero also um this is this the this 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 is why you get um, uh, things you know the, the the data landfills companies are always uh, often moaning about their data landfills because it's just easier to store everything than it is to decide what you need to store and get rid of the stuff that's never going to be useful so you just tend to store everything and you pile up all this information which becomes uh, and the theory is that artificially intelligent tools we're just chucking it all into this giant warehouse in a load of unlabeled boxes. And the assumption is that uh, artificially intelligent tools will go in there and sort it out for us so we can find it again. Essentially. Yeah. 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 And and, and uh, I think the thing that is interesting at the moment is we, we do seem to be in a, a transition. So at the, at the moment, you know, the, the volume of information that we've created, which is absolutely enormous already and only getting bigger far outstrips our ability to comb through it and find what it is we're interested in. Um, and so at the moment, you know, I'm, I'm interested in these kind of forensic cases like this stamp, tracking down this this stamp, um, you know, and and uh, what you have to do in order to, to, to kind of find that information. And there's a, there's a really good example is the, the, the Scripple um, poisoning case. Uh, and there are a couple of really interesting bits about that. One is, um, obviously, initially, there was all of this CCTV footage uh, of the United Kingdom just randomly being collected, and the huge effort that was gone through uh, to find to find the individuals wandering around the streets of Salisbury who they actually wanted to identify, and that a lot of that was the a innocent, manual. The innocent Russian tourists. The innocent Russian yeah. tourists visiting the cathedral, exactly. That 123-metre-high <laughs> sp- uh, spire. Yeah, well, quite. Think, yeah. World famous. <laughs> um, and well worth not visiting, <laughs> yes. Um, so the, the, so um, the, there was that effort and the fact that a lot of that was done manually and that not only that, to sort of short shortcut this process there are people known as super recognizers who are identified for their ability to um be good at spotting features on people i went i went to school with one did you hi carla if you're listening right well there you go you know a super recognizer hopefully she'll be able to tell the timbre of your voice perfectly and recognize you um so sorry but is your point there so it's still reliant still reliant on, on people but but those super recognizers must be doing something that can be um 
that can be replicated uh, and some and in fact you know facial recognition software is is doing this but but it's not just about facial recognition software because obviously they cover their faces it's about gait recognition and all of those kinds of things just being able to spot someone from a single ear or a bit of a tattoo or whatever it might be right but then there's a second part to this which is that um subsequently bellingcat the um uh, the sort of investigatory um kind of collective open source uh, intelligence open source intelligence group um have been able to identify the exact gru colonel who uh, has been identified as one of the the um, people involved in the operation and they've done that from digital forensics effectively looking at um his old military school uh records and him being given an award and so on and um historical photographs which are you know which are accessible and have now been made part of the digital record and it and it suggests for things like that it's going to be you know more and more difficult to commit a crime and and leave no um no record of it because this vast digital archive of everything from you know transport records to you walking along a street to you having been to a college somewhere to getting an award all of that is now a matter of public record effectively the difficulty is that's great if you've got a team of hundreds of police officers and lots of people focusing on this one particular thing but if you just happen as an individual to want to know you know where's that person i was at school with or something uh then you're perhaps left to your own devices a bit more and how do we help all of those individual people get the same results as somebody with a massive team at their disposal let's talk okay. data okay um, i just i've got some stats nick let's talk data yeah so uh youtube videos possibly thousands of hours of video uploaded per minute right um we we reckon that that it's, well it's, according to microfocus last year over a million new social media users per day um it's something approaching a billion tweets per day um something like 67 million instagram posts a day uh you know four billions of facebook messages apparently nearly six billion facebook likes every day that's one like per person what did you like today fraser nothing yet (laughs) there's a lot i mean the point is that there is just uh the the amounts are way beyond any obviously any human's ability i mean we can't it's just not conceivable you wouldn't be able to watch all of the uh you know the the youtube videos uploaded in a day you know in in a lifetime really reasonably so yeah i mean obviously some some kind of artificially intelligent tool has to do something for us um there's also i mean even though peter obviously referred to the fact that the storage is free um is there persistence is the question now uh the the internet archive which we assume you know in in 50 years time is going to be a fairly invaluable resource uh the the wayback machine as it's known uh is quite mysterious we it's i've read a few articles about it and people the things that it archives are really quite odd and you know some of the things are very surprising like see there were no cnn pages at all archived until really recently for example um and then there are archives of like weird sort of czech, czech republic debt uh collection agencies and things all kinds of weird things uh, but if if you look at how much data they've got, right? So they 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 reckon they've got twenty five petabytes of data. So a petabyte is a uh, thousand terabytes. Um, but 
I saw an estimate that Google, Facebook, Amazon and Microsoft between them have 1,200 petabytes of data now at any given time of, you know, pertaining to users. So what that means is that the the Internet Archive for the whole last 30 years has has two percent of of what is on the Internet right now in it. Right now, that must mean that there is absolutely gazillions of data being just lost uh erased deleted unrecoverable um right good frankly <laughs> good i mean um you know there's 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 an argument for why on earth are we collecting all of this this crap what are we doing with it there's a there's a really good um uh asimov short story called the the dead past uh and it's about it's effectively about a scientist who discovers a machine that can look into the the past and uh or he discovers a better version of it and the kind of um the regime at the time uh controls access to these machines and won't let anybody really have access to them other than for academic purposes uh and um it turns out the the reason why that that is controlled is because what they've realized is that instead of people looking at, at far off history what society would actually do if it had unrestricted access to this stuff is spend all of its time obsessed with the very near past i.e more or less the present and engaging in voyeurism on you know to towards one another's lives and turns out that's exactly what we're doing we're creating all of this archived material but we're chucking it all in the bin we're just interested in in you know the present is far more interesting interesting to us than uh than the past now i mean the thing is though yeah, I mean that that's that's undoubtedly true, but if you look at the kinds of things that historians get a huge amount of value from, it does tend to be uh things that are throwaway. You know, it's sort of things that yeah. accidentally survived. You've got the, you know things like old pipe rolls showing, you know, disbursements of tax payments in in Derbyshire in yeah. the year 1300 and and things like and those the Vinderlander um, um, yeah. postcards, yeah, yeah, which were, you know, I mean really really fascinating precisely because no one expected yeah. them to survive. And and yeah, there is a slight, uh, I you know, I just have a slight unease about the fact that you know it feels like well we ought to be able to find these things and we we might not we we, we might not be able to just look up what was on the BBC you know five years ago. Um, we will have the Blue Peter episodes. That's we true. will. I've got a question. Before I do, I just want to hear from Peter. Yeah, well, so but um, how do you go about deciding what's going to be of interest and what's important in the future? I mean, yeah, as we just said, so the, the, the trivial things like birth and death records um end up being incredibly important to historians and letters from soldiers on the front that have been collated by the army archives and things are incredibly useful set of um, data about what was happening any given day on any given battle and things like that so how do you just how what characteristics can you can you define about information sets to that helps you guess which ones you should keeping which ones you should chuck away i think away. there's a from a theory point of view my my feeling would be well my instinct is that it should be lots of different things so in other words you you know you you want uh lots of examples of different types of information yeah, that's right. uh so because obviously information becomes much less informative at scale you know you you get your effectually uh, essentially sampling from the same pool over and over again it's it's better to have 10 totally different data sets with a thousand records than one data set with you know um 10,000 records by and large broadly on average um i mean yeah so i before just to to caution a bit of 
you know, well, I suppose optimism is, you know, I mentioned that uh, the Wayback Machine has 25 petabytes of data. Well, uh, there's one estimate that every single book ever written, if you were to digitize it, ever written in the history of humanity would only come to just over 50 terabytes. So what that what that means is there's already 500 times more information in the Wayback Machine than in every book ever written. So, uh, you know, and of course, that actually also includes every book ever written, which is in there, you know. So so there, there, there is a sense in which, yes, we're losing a far, far higher percentage of information than we would have done in the past. But in absolute terms, what we're retaining is vastly more than we've ever had. Um, you know, so there is obviously the one is cause for concern and but the other is cause for optimism. Yeah, I mean, but just just thinking this through, I, I'm just trying to imagine, right? Let, let's say an event that's fairly well documented, but was a long time ago, um, 200 years ago, let's say the Battle of Waterloo, right? In 1815, I think. Um, that's pretty well documented and it's reasonably well understood um, what happened during the battle. Although actually one of the odd things about it is no one knows exactly what time it started when the first shot was fired. Um, but anyway, notwithstanding that, it's reasonably well understood what happened with the information that we have to available to us, which is the amount of information you would expect from something that happened 200 years ago. Now, let's say um, the Battle of Waterloo happened tomorrow um, with all the technology we have available to us um, and the source of information that we have available to us. W- would there still be a disagreement among yes. about what happened? Yes, right? I, 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 I think you hit on something quite interesting here, which is that um, it's it's very difficult to construct a universal truth. I mean, you would you would be able to probably ascertain what time the first shot was fired. That something like that would be straightforward. But uh, in terms of the, um, you know, there there would always be ambiguities about um who who was who was in the moral right in the in the battle for example uh and i think um you know there are other challenges like the creation of um faked information whether at the time so you know i mean look at um look at the 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 russians and uh, uh the some of the um sort of artificial material they create around uh, around operations you know uh in in parts of eastern europe and so on um that kind of information would also be chucked into the the historical record add to that the capacity retrospectively to to change information so there are there are financial companies now that enable you if you buy something on um let's say you buy something on your private credit card uh, like a work lunch you can go back in after the fact when you realize, oh, that was a work lunch that should be on expenses and change that financial record. Um, that capacity to change digital data historically exists. Now, I'm sure, you know, Peter will jump in in a minute about ways to prevent that from being tampered with. But uh, Spoiler alert, blockchains. Spo- <laughs> <laughs> um, but there is, there. there I think, a large part of what the future historian will be doing is effectively um trying to work out what is the real information about the event and what is faked at the time or faked subsequently okay um we need to draw things to a conclusion shortly um so let's all try and round things off a bit peter uh, well we didn't we didn't talk about the sort of uh, the 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 idea of how things change 
in your environment sort of routinely and you don't notice those changes sort of the change yeah, blind is really interesting yeah. um so you, you as you you, know, you grow older the things certain things are kind of fixed like the color of post boxes and buses they don't change but like next door's roof will change and the the trees will will age and grow but you don't really notice these things um and a lot of these sort of things aren't actually being measured or recorded but may be of interest to future historians so um you might be able to track down your neighbor's financial records 100 years hence and see that he changed his roof but to a future economist a centralized database of how much people spend on their houses would potentially be very interesting yeah I, i'm kind of worried because it is hard it's hard psychologically to notice the last time you see something um but it's also hard uh digitally i mean we can't we can't tell when things are being deleted you know things that we assume are there uh we can suddenly discover have gone um but uh yeah i mean uh like Joni mitchell said you know you, d you don't know what you've got till it's gone yeah they paid, paid paradise, paradise yeah. and put up a parking lot um i you know i think that's another podcast there though is this question of what's missing and how do you identify what's i think i think, I I think, think we've so. done it actually. i'd like to talk about it but i think you're right actually i think we should save that because yeah. uh because I, I think you know it's something because it, so. um, now i'm an old git you know i i suddenly realize what's you know what's happened to um what's happened to those uh those red and white striped tents that telephone engineers well, I mean, used to live in just briefly touching upon this point what and it is kind of a bit of being a grumpy old man is that when you talk about something that is no longer there and maybe wouldn't it be good if it was would have that back again people stare at you like you're like you're a moron or just... and then you go no i'll look it up on the internet and you can't find any record of it at all yeah um okay so look let's stop there is there anything anyone wants to sort of round it off with something well, just just once we publish this podcast to the internet it'll obviously be available for for future generations this wisdom is now enshrined until, yeah don't make the same mistakes we made future yeah, yeah. people until we stop paying for the service that hosts it of course hit yeah. that hit that save button now yeah i mean i i i can't it is unfathomable to me i can't imagine it but imagine it but it's, it'd be so brilliant imagine if we had video from the middle ages i mean how cool would that be to see a video of the, uh, you know, of the of the of the, the peasants, Scottish the Wars of Independence, yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, it would be just brilliant. And of course, that's a, that's what the future generations are going to have, uh, except for there'll all be videos of cats. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. Uh, we're going to stop there. Um, thank you, as always, for listening to the Cognitive Engineering Podcast. I'm Fraser McGrew. We've been here with Peter Coghill, Chris Rag, and Nick Hare of Aleph Insights. And until next time. Goodbye.